what up, guys and girls? It's Bobby. And Sean. Coming to you separated still. I'm still down in Jersey, and Sean's back up in the city. Tri-state area, we've established that. Still the northern tri-state area. Um, this week's episode, as usual, brought to you guys by Paragon Recovery. Use your supplements uh, for their sleep and their anti-inflammatory. Great results, great gains. Highly recommended. Use code Cronus for 15% off any order. Bobby, how has your week been? It's been good. I uh, have been working pretty hard doing my surgery rotation. I did like a 30-hour shift uh, Thursday into Friday. Uh, it was a pretty good shift. Uh, saw like a lot of surgeries. It was in the OR like seven or eight times over that period. So I made it all worth it. You know, didn't sleep at all, but it was good. I I think that's so incredible that they keep you there for that long, but you see so many different types of individuals come yeah. through those ER doors. I, is there, not to say you look forward to one injury over the other because all injuries are pretty bad, but one that you really enjoy you know, taking the challenge uh, in, you know, and trying to fix and help? Uh, So, I don't know. That's a good question. I actually don't really know because I don't think I know enough to have, like, a favorite surgery to do. Um, Obviously, I'm not really like, performing the surgeries, but uh, as the medical student, I'm kind of just, like, an extra hand for a lot of these cases. So, they have, like, attending and two residents doing the cases usually, and then I'm, like, another person in there, like, helping, like, hand instruments like retract and uh help with like getting visualization and stuff but i had a pretty cool case of this guy who had a splenic rupture so a spleen rupture spontaneously and had like was like bleeding out so like when we got we got into his abdomen uh it like just exploded in old blood that's pretty wild uh but we took out spleen it was a pretty cool case just because it was like very uh, how do we done it expeditiously and expediently? So it's always kind of interesting to be involved in that stuff. Well, that's pretty cool that we've yeah. got the technology. Did you hear about the Ranger medic that was able to do a blood transfusion? Yeah. Uh, just a couple days ago. Yeah. So that's like the the Rolo. That's been uh, that's been like in the regimen for a while. Cause I remember when we were there, they had Rolo uh, titer testing, and guys are it's like the walking blood bank. I remember we had to start practicing setting up like IVs and then transitioning to just being able to help the medics out with that. And we had a room next to our, our platoon, uh, you know, like headquarters there on Bath. And I think the entire floor by the time we were done sticking one another was just completely covered in blood. And my battalion commander walked in and immediately shut the door like, I don't want any part of this. Yeah. But it's like it's good practice, um, and then it's actually really cool to see that because that's obviously, you know, one of the few things that's been shown to, uh, you know, prevent ca- like further damage or f- casualties, is that like a uh, whole blood resuscitation. So it's pretty interesting that the seventy uh, fifth was kind of the originators of the walking blood banks. Well, in modern times, because the walking blood banks were like have been around since like world war ii but like not to not really utilized since then for the most part from what i understand so i know too you carry blood and plasma can you explain like what the difference between those two is and how they might be used say like in combat and like sure scenarios? sure 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 so uh so with whole blood uh by like 
the name kind of implies it's whole blood and so it's all your blood uh that hasn't been like um like separated out because typically what what blood banks do and uh pretty much everywhere is to take blood donations so like if you and i went to go donate blood they would take that whole blood and separate it into component parts so they would separate the blood the whole blood into like red blood cells into plasma and then into platelets those are kind of three big components of blood um and then it makes it more efficient that way because you know they can use the red blood cells to transfuse people that you know need red blood cells but not necessarily need the plasma or platelets and platelets are another like um component of your blood system and platelets are responsible for like a lot of the coagulation and uh stopping blood loss um and then um uh what was it plasma has all the proteins like co- uh, coagulating factors and uh, clotting factors that are used uh, in, co- uh, in hemostasis. So um, with blood banks, they like separate all three out uh, into components so that uh, usually from what I understand, uh, I don't know if it's changed or if they still do that or what the current, um, current uh, load that the uh, Ranger medics carry. But as far as I know, they carry two and two which means they carry two packs of red blood cells and two packs of fresh frozen fresh frozen plasma FFP, which the FFP is like freeze dried, so they reconstitute it with like water, and then inject it into patients that need it. But um, so two having like two red blood packs of red blood cells isn't a lot. Um, you think like one pack of red blood cells raises your hemoglobin by one by one point. Uh, so you're thinking about like maybe like half a liter of blood, but uh, the human body has about four to six liters of blood. So, you know, uh, you're not really giving them that much uh, back. You're only giving back two packs of red blood cells. So long story short, having the um, the walking blood banks in terms of the rollo uh, program helps uh, helps increase the supply of whole blood that uh, Ranger medics can give to guys. Uh, to help resuscitate them uh, at the point of injury. Well, that's very cool. I'm going to come back to this conversation of how Ranger medics are trained, um, but more in general, some of the certifications that Ranger leaders get uh, while they're serving in this soft capacity and how that relates to leadership, which is now that we're shifting the purpose of today's discussion is we're gonna we're gonna talk about leadership we've got quite a few questions over the last couple years uh, and recently someone reached out trying to gauge our opinion on what good leadership might have looked like what bad leadership looked like and then some of the differences that we've noticed between serving with the rangers of the 75th and then going back to conventional units where there might be a divide and how we might take that forward and then we're going to tie that back into fm 622 because most of everything we say someone that is way smarter than us has already kind of put it into a good practice but it's the actual application and interpretation that i think most individuals don't ever really get a good opportunity uh to you know put put really good work into it and so i think we're gonna just we're gonna break it off uh and the first thing that we'll talk about because I think it's one of the like first rules of the infantry, like know where you're going. If you don't know where you're going, look cool. And at all times, again, just look cool. But balancing confidence and humility and finding the middle ground. So, Bobby, what's your what's your opinion on confidence and humility and not coming across arrogant? 
I think, I mean, I agree it's like a pretty fine line between, you know, being confident and being humble and having humility. But um, I think, especially when you show up to like a, you know, like a pretty elite unit like, like regiment, you know, you're, you're have to have be confident in like your, your own personal skills and your like, like your, you know, like belonging in the, in the organization, but you have to earn like a lot of the respect from other people, um, just because you're confident, um, in your abilities, you shouldn't be overly confident and you don't want to be, you know, come off as too cocky. Uh, so I would probably like say be more humble or like less loud than, than confident because, uh, over time, as you kind of prove yourself, I think that you can kind of build up more of your own confidence over time as you, as, as you like you prove yourself to others. I think balancing that with the humility factor, knowing what your strengths are, but most importantly, what your weaknesses are, is probably, I think, the first step in understanding how you fit in as a leader. And what I mean by that is if, if you don't understand where you're going to fail... Uh, your rangers or your soldiers, whether it's from a mission planning or a delegatory function, and you don't see how some of your communication skills might be lacking, then you might come off with this verbato that what you say uh, is golden, that you don't ever make mistakes. And the fact of the matter is you're, you're going to make at least one mistake and hopefully never make the mistake again. Uh, but being aware of failure um, and its proximity to everything that you're doing um, and not being completely afraid or crippled by it is incredibly important when it comes to uh, that actual confidence in, in your skill set. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely being like the, the whole self-awareness key is, is huge. I remember like uh, during RASC and like that was like drilled into us, like being, you know, self-aware leaders so that you're able to recognize, you know, what like aspects or what um like facets of your leadership like need work or where you're strong in and what you need to work on um and just knowing how to leverage like your strengths and weaknesses it's like a huge thing not only like in you know military but the rest of your life just being self-aware enough to like um objectively evaluate your own performance and like recognize what you can do better and what you need to work on i think is a huge skill to have one of the issues too with self-awareness is you can have self-awareness, but if it's not honest and you don't apply any attempts to actually improve upon those like self-acknowledged faults, then you're just doing half of the work. And in like a hyper-competitive environment, you're still going to tear down the other individuals that you're competing against for that platoon leader spot, for the XO spot, uh, for those nominative positions. And you're never quite going to be maybe as good as the top 10% of officers in your organization because while they're sitting there and they're seeing their peers for how good or how bad they are at the same time they're improving themselves so it's not just this like self-licking ice cream cone of your excellence just automatically surpassing those of others yeah and it's like uh but, but I don't know I guess there are levels to kind of your self-awareness because I'm sure like I've gotten a lot better over the years at being able to objectively analyze my own, you know, what I could do better and what could I do worse. But, um, I don't know. I think just having like some self-awareness or just having the awareness of like, of what you're doing, I think is like a huge benefit. And I think it just is like a skill that gets better over time. I think it gets better over time, but it's also bolstered by action. 
And if you show up as an infantry officer to your unit, you're tabbed, you're in shape, you like are personable, then it's going to be much easier for you to come across as uh, a leader that can be counted on in the future or put immediately into a position. But showing up and seeing your peers and already having some sort of metric that defines that, like, yeah, you're Victor qualified and, yeah, you've been better than some of the other tabless infantry officers, that might not be what separates you from eventually getting the platoon. It might be more of your attitude, uh, which can which comes across sometimes, you know, just in the few uh, first sentences that you have with your S3XO or battalion commander. Oh, yeah. Th- those uh, first impressions go a long way and are, like, very lasting impressions, uh, especially, like, your first unit or showing up to a unit. Like, uh, as much as it is unfortunate, but... Uh, you know, impre- like sometimes perception is reality, and then, you know, if you're perceived as, if your first impression is to like give off like this, uh, you know, like a cocky or arrogant, um, like bravado, like it's gonna be immediately recognized by those around you, and then you're immediately gonna pretty much get shit on because of that. I think the hardest time I had at balancing confidence with humility wasn't at my first unit. Because at that point, I was self-aware enough to know that I hadn't had a deployment yet. The only thing that I had really completed was ranger school. But whether you go straight through or you recycle, it's not written on your tab. So nobody's going to know the difference between like the strong ranger graduate and the one that you know got, got by by the skin of his or her teeth. Um, where I had an issue, I think, with humility and confidence was when i went to the maneuver captain's career course Why is and that? it was because having the opportunity to deploy several times uh twice as a platoon leader both with the conventional and then the 75th and having experiences that were a little bit more significant i think when it comes to deployments whether it's combat the enablers that you know are attached to you your incorporation of fires your fitness i walked into triple c and i looked at a lot of my peers that had either not wanted to go infantry uh, and were there because they were some other combat arms branch Um, i felt that they weren't motivated to play varsity quote unquote because if they had gone, I just felt it was one of those things everybody should want to apply to be in that organization or everyone should want to apply to go to selection and that if you didn't push yourself enough to get to that next echelon, then you kind of just rested on maybe that initial Ranger tab that you got when you were at iBullock or they didn't maintain their fitness. So when I got there, it was very hard for me to find individuals to learn from that maybe had different experiences because all I saw was like, okay, what is your left shoulder look like? What's your right shoulder like? And then how does your uniform fit on your person because of, and what we'll talk about in a little bit, what I really got out of being in the regiment was a very mission first focus outlook on both training and then the individuals that were serving. And so I think I came off pretty arrogant and it's not something that I don't think I worked too hard at getting rid of uh, while I was at Triple C until I got to my next unit where I realized people think I'm an asshole. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of self-awareness or, you know, being able to appreciate that. But yeah, I think that, uh, especially coming, like leaving from, um, you know, like elite unit, like the regiment going to like 
back to the big army or where what have you i think it's been like a bit of a culture shock to like lead or like leave from very high functioning organizations surrounded by like very high functioning individuals that kind of motivate you and inspire you to get to you know achieve greater than you normally would have going that back to like seeing people that are just you know okay with mediocrity i think the the mediocrity part was what floored me because what was acceptable for passing the course the standards that got created and again not making excuses for my poor behavior or my inability to meld with some of my peers who you know chose to take different routes in life i remember looking even at the cadre that ran triple c and being okay if, if you're not an infantry officer i truly don't care for any of your feedback because you either a did command in like a very heavy unit uh b were in some sort of a of a wheeled uh unit like with strikers or c and very lastly like you might have been a very small minority of like armor officers uh who had you know some sort of cavalry troops where they were doing reconnaissance or you know they were fortunate enough to have their ranger tab in the 82nd and were given company command of an actual airborne company and so because of that i would i would just completely discount anything that they had to say or or look at them and go okay i, I have peers that know you that know what deployments you went on so i'm already going to discount any combat experience just because i didn't want to feel like i had anything to learn by being there which was a, a very poor approach to going to that school because there was a lot to learn doctrinally um, that they had become at least masters in, especially when it comes down to you know enabling leaders and, and we can get into that um, when it comes to good leaders versus toxic leaders yeah i don't know i think i honestly probably tend to err on the side of giving someone more respect than they de- than they deserve but i think that's a bit of my, like my personal like um just my my personal like preference to give people more respect and then you know, give them more credit than they probably deserve. And then over time, either chip away at that respect or increase that respect. But uh, I think having that attitude of like giving it like a little bit more than you probably showed is probably a better practice than I would argue how you've been kind of doing it. That's absolutely true. I, my think biggest weakness that I had was patience uh, because I did not want to wait to find out to see if my like preconceived notions of this individual would be true or not based on you know physically uh, or intellectually judging them you know quicker than, uh, than you know than giving them again that benefit that you mentioned and it you know it was again to the detriment because when you get out of the army and you transition and you have friends that get out and transition that had those different experiences and all of a sudden you lose that connection or that networking opportunity or just you know a friend because you're like I can only surround myself with like-minded individuals it's kind of like this like self-serving breeding ground and the next thing you know everyone that you're hanging out with is the same kind of bitter individual that just yeah. looks at other people and judges too harshly right 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 yeah and uh that's very valid I don't know like I think I've done and it's kind of hard it's hard to make that transition too because like coming from like um like the regiment coming like med school, I would say like most people were pretty um, motivated or self-driven, but there's still like levels to it where, you know, I would probably consider myself more driven or more disciplined than most of my peers, but everyone still, you know, does the same thing now. It's just like they do it different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Uh, I think that's one of the 
highlights that you notice in regiment is the motivation and the drive of the individuals there because there is a I think a bigger buy-in to enabling uh, your subordinates so that you actually see the, the fruits of that training labor and, and working as a collective element. Um, and then also I think some of the quality that you get out of, you know, LPDs uh, and counselings with your rangers that you didn't get in the regular army just because it's more bureaucratic than really, you know, merit-based. Yeah, but I also would argue that a lot of why regiment has so much success is that it's like, kind of like a self-selecting pool because you know um there are it's like uh you have to be like more disciplined than a normal individual to even make it that far you know like you have to volunteer for um you know you have to volunteer for the army you have to volunteer for airborne training then you have to volunteer for you know rasp and then you have to pass all of them so by going through all these like hurdles and gates it kind of like self-selects out already the people that don't really belong and that's why you know as as shitty as selection like selections or schools are um they do i would argue pre- probably a pretty good job of weeding out people who do or don't belong because it becomes readily apparent like who really wants it and who's just there to say they're there you know that's very true what were some of the things that stood out to you from the leaders in regiment both the ncos and the officers and the junior enlisted that maybe you didn't necessarily see in your time in the conventional army I would just say that, like, in regiment, um, I, just generally speaking, I would think that most people are very, like, driven to get better and to do things better. Um, so that w- was manifested all the time, like, during the, during the workday, where, like, you know, the guys are always getting after it and, and training, even if there's nothing, like, on the schedule or nothing, um, like, for the training week or for the day. You know, if they have free time, they're going to do something productive, whether it's, like, um, going over, doing, like, hip pocket classes, going like, doing some RFR refresher stuff, or just practicing, like, calls to fire, or just, like, you know, like, putting shit together, like, taking apart weapons, putting weapons together, just messing with their kid. There was something always going on. They weren't just bullshitting around. Um, and that was, like, the biggest thing that I noticed was that guys are, generally speaking, like, pretty self-motivated to not waste their time. And then if there's free time, doing something productive. Whereas in, like, the big def- army, it's like, if you have any free time, guys just fuck off and, like, not do anything. And I think that also goes back to that leader, though, because, like, I remember that would happen with the motor pool Mondays where, you know, you might have some training or on a, a blank spaces in the calendar that hadn't been occupied uh, by the company commander. Guys wouldn't take charge of uh, that white space training or go and enable their squad leaders to say, hey, go open the arms room. There's nothing stopping you from pulling out the 50 cal and getting guys ready for EIB or going back to the gym. Come up and bring me a plan for different gym hours that you want in order maybe to get after training earlier before getting breakfast so we can maximize our days differently. But you brought up some good points. I think first and foremost, the leaders are different because they emphasize the purpose of the organization in regiment a little bit more acutely than you might see in the conventional army where you get to the regular army and it's like okay yeah we're going to potentially deploy or yeah we've got to go to the field for this ftx it's like the very essence of that ranger organization is kind of you're going to have to potentially go and you're going to have to remove an enemy combatant from the field of battle so that that is literally your focus everything that you do has to have some way a, a tether to that mission set of jumping in, flying in, 
uh, kitting in, rucking in, and, and just taking out this adversary. And if you aren't doing something that has an improvement to that system, um, then you are completely being inefficient with your time and you are not utilizing the, those and the experience of others around you effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I also have like a, a saying that I, I don't know if I, I don't know where it came from, but you know, the cream always rises to the top and it doesn't matter like what organization you're in. Um, the cream always rises to the top and it's rarely apparent like who's better than even at these elite levels. They're always like, you know, the cream of that or the top of that group. I think too, that that's aided by an esprit de corps that leaders own. And if they don't buy into the organization that they're in, or they don't make others buy in, then everything that they say and do gets evaluated based on this. Well, do they really mean it? Or do they really care what we're doing? I mean, like every morning for PT, you did the Ranger Creed. Everybody there, you know, had, you know, Rangers lead the way all the way. Every single time you saluted, there was never a time that there was any drop in the professionalism because every single person wanted to do something to make that organization great. There was never a time where someone was just kind of lazily going through the motions. Yeah, I think the Ranger Creed is like a big aspect to it, too. You know, uh, if you say, well, just the fact that you have a creed that's known by everybody, I think kind of reinforces the fact of you know the the unit culture and the unit ideals like i can't tell you if there's a is there an there's a is there an airborne creed or anything else like that that you know off the top of your feel, head uh i know there i mean like the soldiers creed yeah the soldiers and the nco's creed but when's the last time you heard someone say the soldiers creed or nco's creed anytime in public right no that that's true or i think there's like different branch creeds i think the other thing that it comes down to by having a creed it, it creates these shared experiences mm-hmm. so people that were in different generations can always go back to kind of looking at the text of a standard and saying yes like i continue to aspire to uphold these values and then do something you know and, and be somebody and then with the shared experience with the leaders that i saw in, in regiment in the regular army i would see like you know, squad leaders, team leaders, give guys assignments and then not supervise and just leave. Uh, and they wouldn't be doing it right next to them. But in regiment, it was like, you know, your platoon sergeant was there for almost every single minute of training, developing mm-hmm. that that brand new private, making sure that if the private was being told to do something by the squad leader, sometimes the platoon sergeant would jump in to show them like, hey, this is not like a medial task that we take lightly. Like every single thing you're doing has a purpose, whether it's the dry fire drills, whether it's, you know, going through and, and helping in the arms room and being assigned some of these extra duties, uh, especially when it comes to airborne operations, so that that individual can take that on and, and find some meaning in what they're doing and some buying and always knowing that, you know, that senior leader in your your squad or your platoon or your company is going to be there step by step by step with you and doesn't have something else to be like, oh, you know, sorry, I got to go to a meeting at battalion, can't do it, but, you know, have fun out there. Yeah. I like what you just said is something about, about like, doing the, the small things right. And uh, I think that brings up a great point that I've come to appreciate more, too, and, like, in terms of surgery. But, you know, the best that are the most, you know, the best at their jobs or their fields – uh, the one thing in common they all have is they all do the little things very well, like the basics very well. Like once you have the mastery of the basics, then you move on to like the more advanced techniques and more advanced skills. 
Um, and that's true for like shooting, being able to shoot and then moving on to like clearing rooms and moving under fire. You know, that's all the, you have to be good at the basics before I can move on to like the more advanced stuff. And I've noticed that with surgery too, that all the skills, uh, for all the procedures are essentially the same, but it's the, the mastering, the basic skills and the basic techniques of being able to do procedures is what, um, to, like defines you as either like an adequate average or like an excellent or superb surgeon or shooter. I think so applies, that's awesome. You know, like bringing up some of those kind of certifications that individuals can do. So if you don't take time to go and master like all the elements of your craft, uh, then as a leader, you're failing at organization because there's going to be things that they pick up while doing that. I mean, like with the Rangers between the obvious airborne operations and weapons qualifications, all of the first responder training that you get, all of the small things that you do, you know, doing fries and, and rope work, um, the fitness stuff, uh, the radio work. I mean, there's never like a dull thing. And then going through and, and getting ready for other specialties uh, within your platoon or working with the military working dogs. I mean, there's so much that you can do. And as a leader, if you're not getting your guys to get certified, and to find meeting beyond just that basic description of, you know, whatever they are in 11 Bravo or whatever other MOS code you might have, then that person is just, they're not going to be developed enough in the future to do what you really have to do, which is like teach, coach, and mentor. Right. And that's where we kind of now see with like toxic leaders and subordinates, like how do you, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a toxic leader, Bobby? I think of someone who tells you to do something that they aren't willing or won't do themselves. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree on that. I'd say something along the lines of like failing to do the like teaching, uh, coaching, mentoring, counseling, like would also fall within that. Um, because you're not providing the, the necessary feedback. You're not being the leader that's doing the hard stuff with them. And you're, definitely definitely uh failing them on counseling um because they're not seeing exactly what right looks like when you're not there yeah and i think i mean it's hard to i guess encapsulate like a fully like a toxic leader but i think it's one of those like when you know and you see type things i think you know it when you see it and a lot of times what rank would you say for officers that's like most apparent you think it's a lieutenant a captain major or lieutenant colonel I'd say like 04 major when it comes pretty apparent for toxic or not toxic. I think that, yeah, a lot of people, I think, tend to say like the captains, the company commanders. But I, I think a larger onus of, of that toxic leadership would come from the majors and lieutenant colonels. Why do you think it's the, the majors in the army that, you know, supply the mo most toxicity? Uh now this is just my personal opinion, obviously. So, <laughs> and I obviously haven't been in, like a field grade yet, but uh, I think it has like something to do with like the disconnect that uh, field grades kind of feel from the, you know, the from the troop level. So, and especially like the way that field grade, you know, bullets and OERs and promotions are kind of set up. You know, you only have three field grades in battalion, so it's a very you know strong competition to try to get that top lock amongst the other uh, field grades to try and get that you know that that uh battalion command position so because of that increased pressure on your like career i think that uh, in conjunction with kind of the disconnect from the uh troops because you're up at like the battalion level or, or the staff level so you're not seeing you know the ramifications or the direct aftermath 
the after effects of your decisions as like a staff officer i think that's where that kind of creates like the highest potential for some um, toxicity yeah i would i would agree with a lot of that i'd, I'd also say like i think my personal opinion for most toxic leaders would probably fall on the you know, like battalion commander level uh leadership because their intent is driving whatever train right. uh you know that you're on track for and it, a lot of times just like you mentioned how the majors can kind of be just <coughs> excuse me uh, coronavirus how you can be uh, disconnected. Um, I think the battalion commanders can also be a, a very strong um, role in that because they'll either make you know timelines and, and deadlines that cannot be completed by companies. They stress things with the sergeant major that, again, going back to like, what's the purpose of this battalion? Is it fighting or is it doing admin tasks? And so if they put pressures on stupid stuff like the the metrics that the g3 g5 are pushing down their throat for some random training that you have to get knocked out instead of like weapons qual or fitness i think a lot of time that does a lot to take away from again that esprit de corps that unit mission getting shared experiences out there because then it just seems that this leadership selection is really just arbitrary and, and had really no purpose to bettering the battalion right right I mean, they, they're now doing uh, the new battalion commander uh, assessment program. Um, have you heard about that at all or, or have any personal feelings on that? Uh, I have not heard anything about it. I just I actually don't know anything about it. The only thing I know that they're doing is they're, like, introducing a, a written and oral component to whether or not, like, this person will be a successful commander. Um, and then they're also doing, like, some behavioral psychologist reviews. Oh, yeah. Uh, as part of the BCAP. Yeah. So I get the, the behavioral psychologist part, but like, what about like, re, like written and oral boards? Are they like getting selection boards? I don't know if it's like a selection board. Um, and I don't know what the, the, the written assignment is on. I feel like that's one of those things that won't indicate the type of leader that you really are. I mean like that, that 360 every couple year, assessment tool I, I don't think that is uh, i think that's a little disingenuous because i don't think people are honest or they have individuals rate them that are going to give any negative feedback right. um, but i just think by the time you get to become a lieutenant colonel y y your writing skills your briefing ability is usually pretty tested so i don't think that's going to be like a right yeah a separator and and the psychologist review i just don't see the merit of that unless it's tied to something like your company is in the breach. You're taking fire from a hospital. Give me some courses of action. And then like really evaluating where they, they put the safety and, and the, the risk allocation within their formation. Oh, like in terms of like doctrine or like planning operations. I wouldn't say so much doctrine or planning. I would say like pertaining to like maybe laws of war, what kind of conflict are you in the decisions that, you know, get commanders completely, uh, hamstringed when they when they go to JRTC, you know, like oh, we're in a near peer threat. We've got the entire battalion of Op Four doing a combined arms rehearsal. They happen to be within proximity of a building, you know, say down there in whatever the the made up villages are um, at Polk. I can't remember anymore. You have an opportunity that you can take them out of the battle for you know quote unquote three days, 
uh, are you going to launch an artillery strike or are you gonna say that we can you know attack them um, knowing that that collateral damage risk and how do you respond to that right okay i see what you're saying yes but that seems like i don't know because i remember like in rasp we had to like talk to the psychologist but like i don't quite understand what they're evaluating us for you know i know it was like empathy that was one of the things that came back was like at that point i'd been lacking it oh like one of the self-awareness things yeah yeah i I don't really i mean i guess a behavioral psychologist can like help screen like you know candidates for if they're like emotionally intelligent and mature i guess but i don't know like what else like behavioral psychologists you know what utility that provide yeah i think it's i don't want to say it's like a lip service type event like but when you create and you're setting up a system of of having the leadership uh you know, establish like what's that culture going to be or who's next up in the shoot. I don't think that's like the best way. I think like going through a crucible and some sort of a trial, maybe with like your battalion commander peers where you're put under like extreme pressure and someone gives you a map and a whole bunch of, you know, items and says get from point A to point B. I mean, I get it. They're battalion commanders and like physically that might be much for some of them. But I think that introduces to the, um, you know, raiders a little bit better of idea of exactly how you lead than just sitting in a nice controlled environment where they mm-hmm. just ask you kind of simple softball questions. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, 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 like, I still don't really know how they select people for, like, command select positions. Still, it's all like a black box to me. I, 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 I don't know how they do it either. I know uh, when they were selecting company commanders. It's probably similar uh, in one of the things that, you know, again, was aggravating because it, it came back to is this a, uh, an awareness of my arrogance or is this just confidence? Um, you know, they, they'd find out what year group you were. That was the first deciding factor on, like, who was going to get uh, mm-hmm. a company command unless you had, like, a kind of by name, someone knew you uh, and needed you to fill a position. And then after it went by year group, it was generally... I think some review of experiences where there's specific companies that, you know, one person wanted to fill. Maybe they wanted to take this guy and give him the reconnaissance element or uh, maybe the company that was opening up um, had more to do in terms of uh, like vehicle movements um, than maybe like another battalion that had more of a light personality. Um, But for the most part, I didn't think that it was a very thought out uh, laborious process. The battalion commanders definitely gave their feedback on like who they liked. And I think that came down to less of who they liked, but more who they could, you know, quote unquote, kind of control and rein in and, you know, uh, make them do and command their company as they saw fit. Right. Uh, but it didn't seem like we really put future company commanders through like this ardent test. Like MCCC was, I think essentially a joke. It didn't really push people. It was like a nice little vacation. And then when they got to their units, you just sat and waited in a queue mm-hmm. with no real discernible order of, okay, that guy just happened to show up a month before me. So he's before me when it comes yeah. to command. Yeah. But I think like, aren't like, you know, captains supposed to be guaranteed to command at some point or is that like not a thing? You have to, you, at, at this point you can't deny someone command unless there's like some real egregious event because you have to have an opportunity to promote right. with your peers right um which is i mean it's fair if you want to promote just a general path for these individuals but I, I think company command should be treated a, with a little bit more reverence 
and knowing that, okay, like I have five candidates that come in, and this could be extended to the battalion commander conversation. I have five candidates coming in, um, and there are five companies uh, that are opening up or that have individuals that, you know, we could change that after nine months. Well, if you're telling me that, you know, three of the five uh, are Ranger qualified and two are coming from Ranger Regiment, assuming that, you know, someone else out there didn't have some extreme amount of combat experience or was some, you know, great scholar or had published something or uh, just completely made it apparent that this person was the best of the best. Like I would rate the two individuals that were in range regiments like, okay, these guys are number one and two. Um, I could probably automatically take one and put them into company command right now rather than like putting them on staff. Because while staff time you can like argue is important, I think at the end of the day, the lethality of an organization is more important. And if you have lethal experiences coming to your brigade and your battalion, the first and foremost mission should be putting those guys into a position where they can teach, coach, mentor, work with the other individuals that have that experience within their company and just make a more efficient killing machine rather than be like, no, they have to learn how to write a battalion op board. Like, I don't see that as relevant to being a good leader. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. But, you know, that's kind of the flaws of the army system, I suppose. It's like everyone, it's like a participation medal at this point to get command. No, and that, that's how I looked at it. And like when you look at like FM 622, like again, there's some great content in there. I think one of the things that you have to do is like a good leader development program. And like I know we had to read stuff like good to great, uh, grit, um, some history texts that, that actually had to do with relevant missions that you could apply today. What were some things that you did as a LPD that you really enjoyed and thought was a, not a waste of, of your time? Honestly, I didn't get any LPDs as a lieutenant. <laughs> uh, it's actually funny they mentioned that because I did like a research paper on um, leadership development, taking like FM six twenty two and applying it to like med to med school and to like uh, physicians as a way of like bringing leadership development into a medical school curriculum. So I actually did like a research paper on that. Um, so it's like very applicable uh you know getting the leadership development in but as far as like lpds i don't think i did any like formal lpds in any as a lieutenant ever especially in big army definitely not big army my only lpd that i remember from big army was on i want to say like truly on toxic leadership where it was just a bunch of vignettes of like characters that were so unrealistic that it just became almost like a game of like who could one up another in, in how to fix like a situation where it's like, yeah, and then this platoon leader took a wrench and first he bashed in the knees of the mechanic. How do you guys think that was? Do you think that was a good decision? Okay, next he, he took a wrench and he put it in the tailpipe of his battalion commander's Harley um, and cracked it in half. What you think that you think that's toxic? Do you think that's good? And it's like every single time you went through this, you're like, why aren't we talking about like important things? And yeah. then like regiment it, a lot of it was like fitness inspired um which i absolutely loved like the battalion commander pt sessions i i looked at as a form of lpd because that was like what is your why and how badly do you want something um getting lpds like you know sending rangers to point to hawk and to normandy and seeing how they jumped in and see how they went over these obstacles like completely relevant lpd for organizations like the ranger regiment who could be called upon to do that again now an example of a TDY trip that's completely unnecessary. It just because your unit might have a history 
with some sort of a battle, whether that's a Normandy, for instance. If your unit is a striker unit now or an armor unit, and there is no way in hell that you will ever, ever, ever storm a beach or jump uh, into combat, like going on LPDs like that, I think is like an example of like fraud, waste, and abuse and just a misuse of TDY funds where you just, you know, get a select few of individuals and take them on a very prestigious vacation where they can quote unquote learn from you know, historical context, but it doesn't apply to your unit. So, like, make trips like that applicable to the function of your organization. I mean, yeah, I know, but, I mean, kind of agree, but kind of disagree on what you just said because at the end of the day, you're still learning whether or not it's ap- directly applicable to your current situation or not. I'm pretty, I'm a pretty big fan of, uh, you know, broadening experiences and being able to learn from, pull from different fields and that might apply to your, your situation. So, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that statement okay yeah i think mine for that comes from uh as far as leader development goes with the army and when we look at the officer corps especially when you have these different tracks again because just from the infantry like you have to do uh wheeled or mounted time and you have to do light time and they do this so that like you have experiences that are transcendental of the whole army so whatever formation you get to you have an ability to you know fit in but then you look at the senior individuals in the army and it's like a do as i say not as i do where they've been in airborne formations their entire career and now you know they're telling me that they want me to go and be in a striker unit like that doesn't make sense so from the idea that all of a sudden we have to um, have these opportunities to see like the breadth of the army rather than being more specialized, I think is, is detrimental to leaders because, you know, if you end up in a mechanized unit, not to say that you should be there the rest of your career, but you're more likely to be like an expert in that after being there for 10 to 20 years than being like, okay, after six years, we're going to PCS you and you're going to go to an airborne unit where you know nothing and you might pick some stuff up, but like, I don't know why. Uh, and it goes back to the leadership concept that we're we're getting such a, a broad uh, amount of experiences in there when maybe a more specified solution uh, is better. I don't, that's also, I don't necessarily agree with that whole thing about specialization. Um, I think pers- like personally, I think that I don't about like the idea of specialization. I think that, you know, especially as a leader, you should be able to understand and, and appreciate it and know how to, utilize all forces or or you know know that understand the intricacies involved with leading different formations so i i think I'm, a, I'm actually a pretty big fan of having you know broadening assignments and assignments that expose you to the heavy world to the mech world to the you know light world to the airborne world Cause i think it all still builds like a strong leader that's that appreciates all circumstances and i think that's especially true in medicine too um one of my this kind of a couple of weeks ago, one of our deans had a talk with our class, and they brought up a really good point that in medical school, because in, med- in like in medicine, you specialize in a certain specialty, you know, like surgery, internal medicine, OB or whatever, what have you. So like in med school, this is like the only time, like our third year, uh, when we do our clinical rotations, that's like the only time that we have exposure or learn about the other specialties and how they function and how they work and their individual roles. And if you never, and and then if you don't get that experience in understanding how a different specialty works, um, when you're trying to work with that special, like work with that specialist, you're not going to be able to understand like where they're coming from, like their thought process, or you know, kind of how uh, they function. 
And the same is definitely true in the army too. Like if you never work with, you know, MPs or you don't work with um, like aviation units or whatever, you're not going to understand how to best utilize them or understand even how to talk to them. And I think that's um, as leaders, you have to be exposed to different formations and different TTPs and everything just to make you as a leader, make you a more, a better leader uh, and more, you know, well-rounded. I can buy that argument on, you know, playing the devil's advocate. I would say that you could probably get those same experiences from good leaders from other organizations that might teach you or advise you on how to best use their formations. I mean, like they're not going to send mech, you know, mech or light guys to a cab at a major division to find out how uh, lift operations go. You know, they just rely on, okay, there's that major that's up at brigade or there's the um, commander and, and the platoon leaders for this uh for this Blackhawk formation that they're going to come and tell me the best way that they get utilized. And I don't have to be in that formation to know that. Similarly, I don't have to be in a tank company to get the general idea of what the effective range is um, of their main gun or how much fuel they consume. Like those are just, I think you can, you can make it more efficient by allowing them to tell you uh, what's going on and then just seeing and respecting um you know, that, that focal point of their mission rather than, again, having to experience it firsthand. Yeah, but, like, relying on somebody else's expertise is also kind of, you know, not necessar- not always going to be the best for you as a leader when, not, you know, no understanding, like, your own or having experience it yourself, not having to rely upon other people. But then, like, with staff, yeah, I mean, this that's what the staff is there to help you with, but I still think at the end of the day, like, you know, it's probably not going to, you might hate or not like being like going from like regiment, like a light airborne unit to go into like a heavy mechanized like first calf. But I'm sure like if you do that, I'm sure you get like a pretty broad experience and kind of understand, you know, the intricacies of being in these formations that will serve you better as a leader in the future. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the idea too of a spree to core. And if you end up in a unit that you don't want to be in, like you need to find some way to love it, to buy in and to make others know that like that's your primary focus is being beneficial. Because I think it also goes back to something that uh, I remember at RASP, uh, Colonel Vanek asked me, was like, what's the best unit you've ever been in? And I remember sitting there being like, well, I've only been in, in one unit. Uh, I guess I'll say like 1-8 CAV. And he was like, yeah, like whatever unit you're in is the best unit you've ever been in. Mm-hmm. Because if you come back to me and like say you're you know, you're for company command and of the three units you've been in, you know, we're like, okay, first cav, ranger regiment, four ID, and you tell me the best organization you were in was a 75th. Like I think, granted, you can, you can assume that. But if you don't think the last unit you were in was the greatest, it's because maybe you didn't apply yourself enough and it speaks volumes of either your lack of buy-in or your your powers to really influence and make an organization better and really live up to kind of to that Abrams charter mm-hmm. um, with the whole point of the regiment. So I think that was something, you know, you have to do as a leader. Again, is buy-in. And then the, the big one I would say um, is enabling leaders and setting conditions, your goal setting, the assessment and, and the advice and guidance was like crucial and something that I learned in, in Ranger Regiment. Bobby, how many times do you think you would counsel um, those Rangers that you led? Uh, I would do my FSNCO at least once quarterly and after every like major training event. 
And what, what was the benefit of doing it after every single training event, even if it went like really well? Uh, I think after every like major training event where it's like, you know, that's like, you know, the A game, um, you want to give quick feedback and immediate feedback and let them know like what to work on and what not to work on. Because, you know, as a leader, that's your obligation is to, is to counsel your subordinates and, and let them know like what they need to work on, what they don't need to work and what they need are like doing well on. And you're doing not only like you're subordinate a huge disservice if you don't tell them what they need to work on. But if you're like scared or, you know, you don't want to hurt their feelings, you're just doing them a huge disservice. Uh, it's kind I of agree. incumbent on you as a leader, especially like if you're going to work with this individual, like work with your subordinates, you have to make sure that you're telling them and counseling them appropriately. Because that's the worst thing that happened, like when it comes around for like your NCER or OER and like being told that you're doing great and they get like that middle block. It's like, that's a terrible feeling to get. I would definitely agree, especially now that they're doing that rating scheme for the NCOs where it's, yeah. you, you can only allocate so many of, of the top blocks. What is the benefit of putting that on paper for the uh, opponents to something like this where they're like, I just do, like to do it, you know, uh, PT counseling? You know, what's the benefit of paper? The benefit of paper is that it's on paper and you can reference it. And it also, like, shows, you know to like like higher ups or like that for that senior level rating like that proves that this individual is getting better or getting worse or not or not doing anything at all and like as much as it as much as we want to like not rely on paper but you know if it's not on paper it didn't happen and what would you say like the three most common things you talked about on uh every counseling were it'd be like things like um like empowering junior leaders and like um how how well they did um i guess like uh mentoring and leading the, the younger ncos and then how they uh individually perform at like a event and then just overall like um uh like things that they did well and things that uh, they could have done better for future events I always like to do that, and then I would I would try to every single time talk about like short and long term goals oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, personally for them because I think one of the worst things that you could do is if you had individuals like at Regiment, you know, like everyone thought that eventually like y you might have to leave and do like charter time. So it was like, what what do you want to do? I mean, you might have like a lot of junior rangers that said I wanted to go to SFAS, and while there's like a huge competition between the two units, it was one of the things. All right, well, like how are we going to get you there? Like, I need you to know that like, I support you entirely that like, while I didn't want to go to that unit or while I think like, this is the greatest unit ever. Why would you want to leave? You can't, you can't make that apparent to the individual who has aspirations uh, that are different than yours. And I think asking like what people want to do with their career is really critical and helping guide them, whether it's like having guys open up and talk about, they actually want to go to school. Okay. Well, I'm going to put this down that you want to go to school. And next month when we talk, if, you don't have uh, something on like making that a reality. Like I'm going to start digging into you and finding out like why you're not pursuing what your passion is. Yeah. I think it's a great point to bring up. Like uh, that's something that um, I always enjoyed asking my guys what they wanted to do. And as a leader, you're, you're kind of obligated to support them and kind of their decisions. Like you shouldn't be the one that talks them into or out of doing something, you know, because you think that's the right thing to do and, and not like um, what they want to do. If that makes sense. No, it's absolutely, you know, you, and if you don't know how to phrase that, that kind of stuff, if you just go through 
like your own life and figure out times when you were making that critical decision and like what was that impetus to actually go and, and action your dreams? That's just the kind of stuff that they're going through as well and why they might be like the same age as you or have like vastly different experiences at the end of the day. Like it just takes a little nudge that one little, you know, that first domino that falls, it might be the one that completely, you know, changes their life. And, and like you are definitely not the catalyst uh, for it, but you are like you are a driving force in, in getting them to that like self-actualization. Yeah. And it's like I did it with all my guys like if they wanted wanted to get out like and they were great, you know, FOs. I didn't wasn't trying to talk them into staying if they didn't want to stay. Instead, I was asking them like what they wanted to do with their life and then how we could best prepare for the next step in their life. Not necessarily like, whether that's, you know, still in regiment, outside regiment or just outside the army in general and just being able to kind of help work with them towards their goals. And I think all my guys really appreciated that, you know, that I had their backs regardless of what they're not, what they wanted to do and supported them, what they wanted to do. And I think one of the other things that goes into counseling and because it's really hard to have that like borderline fraternization uh, when you are a, you know, a younger leader, like when you're a brand new platoon leader, or even when you're a more senior platoon leader and you get comfortable with your guys, you're like, oh, I, I guess we could, you know, go to a platoon party or have people over at my house and, you know, crack a keg and barbecue. But like in order to minimize some of, of that uh, negative spotlight that like more senior leaders might not like, this is one of the only opportunities then you're going to have a one-on-one -on -one opportunity to find out like personally what's going on in their life you get a much better idea of maybe with asking what those goals are, what their family dynamic is or was, uh, how they got to where they are, and then like major issues that they might be dealing with. And especially now that we're dealing with so much of the suicide prevention, like this might aid in preventing that in the future. If all of a sudden stuff that you were supposed to, you know, and I'm using air quotes here when you get drawn on the desk, uh, or you know, brought to the the floor of the commanding general that you should have seen. Well, this will make sure that you can say, "Hey, look, like I saw everything. Like we got into it. Here's the counseling statements, and it's just proof in the pudding that you know you are putting more effort into this soldier than maybe the person that's just you know doing the again the PT next to the motor pool Monday kind of formation talk." Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was like uh, I would probably say that maybe I bored a little bit on fraternization uh looking back on it but i don't necessarily regret it i think that i developed a great relationship with my guys where i was able to you know show that we could hang out like outside of work and but still you know stay professional for work yeah what do you think some activities would would be appropriate when you want to hang out with your soldiers and and build a bond with them um beyond just again always having that level of respect but you know beyond just the the cold calculated lieutenant yeah, i would say like definitely getting food together um we did that a lot uh especially being on I was like as fires guys to going away on like a tdy's a bunch we'd always just hang out you know uh getting food or getting some drinks uh i would advise not getting super shit hammered with your guys because that that can lead to some or you know like kind of some questionable situations uh but i you know dd for my guys sometimes which might may or may not have been a great idea <laughs> in retrospect, but, you know, just being outside of work and like showing that you're a normal human being that, you know, that you can have a beer with somebody and not be weird about it. I think that's a good like start. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And if, if you saw one of like your Rangers or something out downtown Columbus at like the Cannon, is it, is it Cannon Brew Pub? Like, would you yeah. immediately just 
turn and leave or would you, no. would you engage them? Fuck no. I would immediately say what, like walk up and say what up and see what's going on. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely like a, a mature route because again, it's finding out how they're doing that night. Um, the same thing like in Savannah. When, if I went to the rail, you know, see that was like always a, a nice common spot just to see how they're doing, making sure that they're out with you know what you would always say on your Friday brief, like make sure you have a ranger buddy. Yeah. Um, so like if someone's you know scuffs up your pumas, you know your your guys there to make sure that you don't flatten them into a sandwich just because they're you know some hipster in Savannah. Yeah, like I, I like, I probably would probably erred more on the other like towards fraternization a little bit with some of my guys, uh, in some situations. But I think like, overall we're like we're pretty professional about it. You know, at the end of the day, like I still talk. I think with, that also, yeah, that might go back to like you had a you know you had a smaller fire section. Mm-hmm. So I think when you work in such close proximity to just a handful of people, like you're bound, I think, to get a little bit closer. Um, and form a, a little bit deeper relationships with them. I think it's one of the things you see with a lot of like ODA teams, like they're all on like first name bases and, um, you know, very few of them are very like, you know, formulistic in their, their approach to leadership. It's very like, this is a gigantic team and a gigantic family. Yeah. And then, uh, I think that was a, that was a big like contributing factor with my guys. Cause like they're all also mostly on the older end. I think like one, two three of my guys already went to college or prior service and like they're all like you know old older anyways so they're already like relatively like closer in terms of like life experiences uh to me so you know that was like made it a little bit easier to get along and get closer with them or like be more comfortable with them because i knew i like recognize that they were a little bit more mature and were able to distinguish between like work and like you know hanging out outside of work no, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree that I think age is something that the regiment has as an advantage over uh, regular units. I would guess that the average age of a ranger um, at almost every single rank um, tends to be maybe a, a year or two older. Oh, yeah, um, I and then what, I think they promote a little bit quicker uh, as a result of, of some of the maturity level and then obviously the different operational tempo where you're, you're definitely exposed to a, a different type uh, and severity of training. Yeah. So definitely a little bit on the more mature side. So I think that helps too. And and like the, you know, outside of work dynamic. And everything uh, with leadership, I think, and one of the things we can probably close the conversation on is we've talked a lot about how you work with your subordinates, but how about how you work with your direct supervisor and like that, you know, that second supervisor up that's your senior rater. What are some tips that you'd recommend in, either having a dialogue being honest um what are some best practices that you observed um something that i wish i did more of was asking for feedback more like direct feedback and that's something i struggle with still um i don't i I just generally speaking don't ever ask uh, superiors for feedback and just kind of assume that you know if they're not telling me i'm doing a bad job i'm doing an okay job but i also do like a lot of that self analysis and like what i well like what i can do better and what i should do better so um that's one thing that i would definitely try and do more of is asking for direct feedback and um figure out like from my rater like what i could be doing better what i'm doing uh poorly just to like close that loop that's definitely a good one i i would uh promote like candid and honest feedback 
um, on top of you know what what Bobby mentioned, which is great. I think like a number two close to getting that feedback um, would be bottom up refinement, and it's like really intimidating to go up to your commander or your senior raider and be like, hey, I think this is actually a better way of doing this, or like advocating for maybe like your platoon's um, mission being a little bit different than what they saw based on again knowing and enabling your your soldiers and rangers and how they can, you know, more efficiently be uh, utilized in whatever capacity that, you know, they have to be. So I think that was one thing that it took me a while, but once I got comfortable with being able to talk to my commander in an open dialogue, always being respectful, identifying a problem, but having a solution, it made a world of difference when it came to being provided like some freedom for maneuver on training uh, in combat operations, uh, and in general, just kind of, uh, the dialogue between us opened up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of it's just like being, you know, present and being a, like a supportive or like doing your job definitely contributes a lot to developing a, like a positive relationship with your superior. I think one thing that's hard is the idea with your superior that like, you don't want to be too disconnected where mm-hmm. the only time you see them, like, uh, my commander regiment like I'd see in the morning for like a, a quick 15 minute brief before PT and then unless there was something that like I truly needed him for for some like far out training that I couldn't go to the XO for I would not see him until like a closeout uh, comment or just like saying hey sir I'm out of here like see tomorrow Rangers lead the way doing something like that because I was so afraid of looking like a kiss ass yeah um and then when I saw it, my peers had better relationships with the company commander. It was like, man, I, I kind of wish I'd had that because, like, I really don't know how this guy operates. I, he, mm. I get feedback from him or I'll get an order from him and I'll, you know, be like, okay, I guess that's a good order. Hey, here's a suggestion I have. And then, you, like, you pop smoke and you don't really get to know them on a deeper level to understand how they think and why they're utilizing you like that. Yeah. And I think uh, that's just, a, you know, I think that is like a fine line to tread. You know, you don't want to come off as a suck ass and you don't want to come off as a brown noser, but you also want to like get to know the people that you work with. And I think I did, I don't know if it was just, I didn't, I don't think it was intentional, but I would always, you know, pop my head in the office uh, of my commander and just see what's, what he was up to and see if I could help. Because my office was next to his too. So, and obviously like as an FSO, I definitely have a lot closer connection with the, you know, the, the commander than um, any of the, like the infantry PLs would have because by the nature of our job, of my job, I'm like, you know, the, the commander's like right hand through like all operations. And I would warn individuals that would say you don't want a close relationship with your commander because what it eventually will turn into is like a lack of trust. And instead of knowing, you know, who your commander is and what their intent is for training, when they show up to your range or they show up to your PT event your first instinct would probably be something like, what the fuck are they doing here? I, why are you here? Are you spying on me? Like, do you not trust that we're doing this? Like, like you're, you're automatically putting this negative connotation over their visit or their observation of training, which is what good leaders are supposed to do is observe and be mm-hmm. there and, you know, again, shared experiences. But if you don't have that relationship with them, you're probably going to start tending to to think like that rather than just acknowledging that there is a purpose for them. And because you didn't talk to them enough, you just assume that it's negative. Right. Yeah. And it's like the, uh, the expectations versus reality type, um, you know, situation. Yeah. And it might speak more to like your insecurities, 
um, than your securities. And again, having that self-awareness, one of the first things we talked about today, uh, that, that would really be a, a huge limiting factor. And again, your relationship, but it's also, you know, how do your guys look at you when you show up to uh, an event and if you haven't built a relationship with them through the training, through those shared experiences, there's a likelihood too that they go, damn it, what is the platoon leader doing here? Like, yeah, I don't need him doing? here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's probably a good spot to leave it because we, we've talked about like what you can do with your senior leaders, uh, what you can do with your uh, junior leaders. Um, and so I just think it's, uh, you know, it's it, it's incumbent upon you to, to take a role as a leader, step up, do something, you know, kind of be that change you want to see, be somebody. We keep saying it, but you can apply it to almost every single mm-hmm. thing um, that you do. Yeah, I would definitely say that um, you should probably, you need to understand the doctrine too. Like when I was a lieutenant, I never cracked open the doctrine or read anything, you know, like doctrine or like FMs or anything like that. And now that I'm like in medicine, I have appreciated more so the fact that you really need to understand like the basics before you can like move on to like reinventing the wheel because you know, probably a lot of the, your great ideas when it comes to like leadership have probably already, you know, been written down or thought about by somebody that's, that knows more and smarter than you are, like Sean mentioned earlier. So I would definitely highly recommend, you know, pulling up some doctrine or some some books and like learning as much as you can, because, you know, at the end of the day, like you should be fully committed to being the best blank that you are, that you can be. And that also involves improving yourself and learning more about whatever your job is or whatever you're trying to get better at. Um, and it's incumbent and like, it's like, if you want to be a good, whatever you have to put the time in to like learn. For sure. Um, I, I love that. Bobby, do you want to talk about a, a nonprofit, um, or a charity, uh, this week that's near and dear to your heart? Yeah. So actually, uh, a couple of my classmates are going on a mission trip down to, uh, Dominican Republic, uh, they, it's a Christian based ministry. Um, but they, you know, uh, have the, like a health clinic there that my classmates are going to go volunteer in, uh, for a couple of weeks, but they also do like, um, uh, like ministries and all sorts of, you know, um, like breeding, bringing education and resources to impoverished communities in the Dominican Republic. Uh, so, um, through Cronus, I donated, uh, some money to them to help, um, help their organization out because that's what we're all about is, you know, even though it's not necessarily like a military veteran, uh, charity, it's still something that, you know, we want to help, uh, raise awareness to and help, uh, promote other, uh, nonprofits, um, to help, you know, kind of share the well, so to speak. That's a, that's a great cause to get behind. Again, guys, every single week we're going to do something where we highlight some great nonprofit and charity work out there. Uh, if you've got one, um, you know, we're, we'll let people know. Uh, if you're in the UNC area, Chapel Hill, they do a 10-miler uh, every year in the spring um, to raise money. Uh, we've got one of the Cronus fam that's going to go run that. Uh, you'll see them in some kit there. Uh, get after stuff like that and and if you want to spread awareness about trying to set up an event l- let us know um, as well but Bob you got anything you want to you want to close out with no I think that's it um, I think it's one thing that we want to definitely work more on in terms of the nonprofit awareness and you know bringing some awareness to other charities and nonprofits 
Um, uh, but I think that's some, that's a big thing that we're going to start working towards, uh, kind of spreading some knowledge and awareness through our, um, through our like uh, platform, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And for, for those of you who are starting to get into like application season, uh, if you're looking at transitioning to bring this back to like the Corona Scholars Program, um, we're going to open that up here in the, the spring and early summer. Uh, so if you're looking to be a 2020 uh, scholarship recipient, um, get that packet together. All the details are on uh, cronusfit.org underneath the Cronus Scholars banner uh, up at the very top. You'll find out exactly what you need um, just to help you and try to get ahead of it before you start going through all the important transition paperwork and getting out of the Army. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely uh, check it out if you're interested in doing anything. And it doesn't have to be, you know, college like Eric is doing, uh, is going into like gunsmithing school. Um, so there's plenty of, you know, as long as you're like trying to take and transition to like a, into a trade or craft or um, or school, you know, we're trying to help you out and uh, with any of the costs you might be incurring uh, with the transition. That's great. Well, Bobby, I'll talk to you during the week, but I will formally talk to you uh, next week for another episode of the, the Cronus Fit Get Together. Absolutely. Next week's episode of the Cronus Cast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five-star review. You know, let us know what we're doing good, what we're not doing well. Uh, as like we talked about this entire episode, feedback is the king when it comes to leadership development. So give us the feedback that uh, that we would like to receive and just let us know what we can do better and worse. Bye. Bye, guys. Later.